All right, if you have a Bible, page 841, it's going to be Matthew chapter 15. We're in a series called Eating with Jesus, and what we're doing is looking at some of the texts where Jesus eats with people in the Gospel of Matthew. He happens to eat with people a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. In part one, we looked at what we call the Last Supper, the Last Supper of Jesus. And what's really interesting is that when Jesus wants to communicate, share the meaning of his death and resurrection, he doesn't give a message, he gives a meal. And so a meal is actually our keystone habit here at Oikos Church and really across the church globally. Eating with Jesus is what we do. (laughs) We eat at the table with Jesus and then whenever we gather around little tables with our families and with our groups and all around, we're inviting Jesus to do his work among us. Somehow his death and resurrection comes to life through the breaking of bread. Last week we looked at part two and it came from Matthew chapter 14. 14 is just one chapter before 15 where we are today. And he feeds, do you remember the story of 5,000 people? There's all these hungry people and his disciples say, Jesus, you've got to send these guys home. They're getting hungry. We don't have any food. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. And I'm so just struck by this tension. And we're going to explore it today too. Where sometimes we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have to do something about this. And then sometimes when we come to Jesus and say, you have to do something about this, he says to us, you do something about this. Somehow both are working together in two back-to-back stories of Jesus feeding huge crowds of people. There's a partnership that's happening here between God and between us. And I, I want to explore some of those implications, but, but really let me, let me just start with this question. Have you ever been cu- confused by Christ? Have you ever been confused or frustrated by Jesus by what he says, or by what he does, or by what he doesn't say, and by what he doesn't do. Jesus can be really confusing. It it can be really difficult to trust. We sang a lot of songs today that were really moving to me, partly because I've been searching the scriptures in this passage. It's it's like, God, I know you're going to do it again. God, I know you're good for your promises. You are faithful. Uh, Rebecca had this really wonderful reflection at our welcome today. Uh, She said that sometimes we don't even have words to communicate the groaning that's in our hearts, but God, she says, remember that God is good, and so we can worship him. There's a tension, though, a lot of times between the confusion and the frustration that we feel and and the knowledge that we're also kind of carrying with us in our heads. But today our text is one of the most confusing passages about Christ that you'll ever find. A lot of Bible teachers, they say, if you're really comfortable with the Christ that you know, don't read the Bible, <laughs> because you'll be confronted with, with a lot of other pictures of Jesus that are really challenging. So today, we're going to look at a text where Jesus really may make you uncomfortable. I want you to know that's really a normal response. Um, we've all been there in a variety, not only of life, but in passages where we're struggling with how to make sense of Jesus. Um, but just full disclosure... I mean, this doesn't surprise you. I come to Jesus as a worshiper, as someone who knows that he's a better man than me, <laughs> that he is God and human. In, so I'm trying to make sense knowing who he is and making sense of this, this really difficult text. So let's dive into a text. It's going to be about the feeding of the 4,000, but before we get to the, the meal with Jesus, before we get to the eating with Jesus, We're going to look at this conversation that sets this tension. Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, 
He's been in some controversies with some Jews in the area, and they are really on him. They don't wash their hands before they eat, and not only is this a little gross, I guess, that's what we would think, but for Jews in that day, they're also concerned with, with the fact that he's breaking tradition of the elders. They say, who do you think you are? And so leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This word withdraw is where Jesus retreats. He retreats a lot. He seems to always retreat this word, withdraw, when he's under threat. We saw this last week, too. When somebody's out to get him, he'll retreat. Even when he was a baby, Herod the king is out to get the, the, the children in Bethlehem. And so his family withdraws. A little later, there's a crowd of people. They're trying to kill Jesus, and so he withdraws. Last week in Matthew 14, we saw that Herod, he's just cut the head off of John the Baptist, and now he's looking for Jesus, and Jesus withdraws. And here, once again, he's on the run because people are so fed up with Jesus. They're after him, these Pharisees and scribes that he's in conflict with. And so he withdraws, but strangely, he withdraws to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is not a geography sermon. I'm going to make this very easy. Tyre and Sidon is a Gentile territory known to be enemies of Israel. Jesus is leaving Israel, his, his people, to flee to a land of Israel's enemies. And what this does, the setting change, is it turns everything upside down. And so this story, nearly everything that happens is a great reversal. You know, do you know what I mean by reversal? It's like whatever you're expecting, it seems like almost always the opposite is going to happen here. It happens in terms of setting. Where does this happen? Where does he go to for safety? He goes to Israel's enemies. And then when he goes to their enemies, he finds a Canaanite woman. Now, Canaanites are specifically some of the greatest enemies of Israel in all of the Old Testament. Canaanites are the people who oppress them. They, they are constantly attacking them. They are, the, they are the people who offer their children to the Baals in worship. They are idol-worshiping, violent, dangerous threats to the people of God. And yet, remember, everything in the story seems to be a little turned upside down. And yet, this is the woman that comes to Jesus. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, and she's crying out. Now, this, frame it like this. Imagine, this may be too strong, but imagine that there's like a Nazi sympathizer. Nazi sympathizer, not good guys, right? Okay. Bad guys. We're all on the same page there. Okay. Nazi sympathizer who's running after a Jewish person. And they're screaming. Are you a little nervous about what might happen next? <laughs> that is the scene where Israel's greatest enemy is running at a Jewish person who historically they hate each other. All of these kind of markers, these ethnic markers are, are signaled here to show the contrast. They historically hate each other. She's running at him. She's crying out. She's yelling at him. And yet, everything is not as it seems in this story. It's about to get uncomfortable. Let's, let's dive into this next verse. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. You see, instead of coming at Jesus and screaming at him and attacking him and and acting like the enemy that her people historically have been, she comes to him and says, my Lord. 
Now, this is a title of respect, but she seems to mean a lot more than respect because she also says that he is the son of David. This is the title of Israel's Messiah, Israel's king, their, their, their great king, the one that God made promises to. He says, one of your sons, David, is going to sit on my throne and have an everlasting kingdom. They're waiting for the son of David. He's the Messiah, the king of kings. And she says, I know who he is. He's right here, my Lord, son of David. Now, this is crazy. How could she know this? She just met the man. The how question is really important. It doesn't really answer that question, but that she knows it is the most important thing. She knows who Jesus is. He is Lord, and he is son of David. And she says, have mercy on me. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at a different text. It was when Jesus called Matthew. Matthew was a sinner. He was a tax collector. He was a guy nobody in polite society wanted to be around. But Jesus says, you have to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mercy. Over and over, people in the Gospel of Matthew come to Jesus and they ask for mercy. Have mercy on me, the blind men come and say. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy, have mercy. Everyone's asking Jesus for mercy. And you know what he does every single time? He gives it to him. Except one time. Except one time. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And Jesus did not answer a word. Silence. So his disciples came and they urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. One commentator says, she's hounding us. Just make it stop. This may activate something in you. Has anybody ever made you feel like that? Like you were an outsider, like you didn't belong, like you shouldn't be there? Like whoever's on the inside, maybe it's mom or dad, maybe it's a church leader, maybe it's a boss at work. Somebody who seems to have power looks at you and says, nothing. It's like they don't even notice you. Where it maybe feel like you're overlooked, but then it seems like everybody else on the inside doesn't even want you there. This may be your worst fear about coming to a new church if this is your first time. <laughs> like, are they going to be like the last one? Church hurt is a very real thing that many of us have experienced. Family hurt is a very real thing that many of us have experienced. And this may be activating something in us for good reason. And so I'm, I'm inviting you right now to hold on to that feeling and also hold on to a sense of hope about what might come through this. But I want to warn you, this might get worse before it gets better. Send her away. This word send her away is actually used four different times in this section. It becomes a key word for what Jesus seems to be doing here. 
The disciples want her gone, get her out of here. But Jesus has a different mindset about sending people away. Jesus finally answers, and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What does this mean? Sheep? He says, in actually a few chapters earlier, when he's sending out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, it's a little training session for the people who've been with him for a while. He says, I, I want you to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This word lost, it's the same word of send away. I want you to go to the people who have been sent away, who feel lost, they're released, they're, they're wandering. But the house of Israel is important because Jesus seems to be doing something for Israel in order to do something for the world. There's, a, there's a, an order that seems very important. This order is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To Israel first and also to the Gentiles. Have you heard that before? It's there in the book of Acts. It's all over the letters of Paul. And it, it's actually a summary of what basically happens in the Old Testament. From the first call of Abraham which is, I'm, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to make you, your one family, into a nation. Why? So that you can be a blessing to all nations. I'm going to bless Israel for the sake of the world. I'm going to bless Israel for the sake of the world. The prophets say the same thing. Isaiah has all these prophecies about how Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. I'm going to bless them, and then I'm, I'm going to call in the world. But where Jesus shows up in the storyline of Scripture... It's that Israel isn't blessed. They're not even at the table. They're wandering loose. They're, they're supposed to be God's sheep. They're supposed to be God's children, and they're not even here. It's like a Thanksgiving dinner where God's just alone at the table, and his children aren't even there. It's a shepherd who looks around his field and doesn't have anybody there. He has to go searching for the lost sheep, the ones who've been sent away. Jesus says, I have to go to Israel first. Now, look what she says. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. This word knelt is the word in Greek, proskuneo. It means worship. Its, it's most primary definition is somebody who bows down in worship. She hears that he's the, she knows he's the Lord, she knows he's the son of David, he's going to Israel, but she says, but I, I know who you really are. She kneels down, she worships him. She's going to call him Lord one more time here. Lord, help me. She seems to be, as best I can tell, she seems to be kind of really indwelling in Psalm 30. Psalm 30 is this poem that starts out by saying, Lord, have mercy on me and help me. And it ends in Psalm 30 verse 10. Lord, be merciful to me. Oh, Lord, my God, help me. She's quoting Israel's poets to Israel's Messiah as she bows down in worship. Help me, she says. And then what would you expect Jesus to do? Well, you'd expect him to help her, right? But remember, in this story, hold on for a second, because everything is not as it seems. It's all reversed. Look how Jesus responds. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. 
What a weird thing to say. It's a quick parable. There's three things that are pretty easy to understand. The children is Israel. And in the book of Exodus, God says of Israel, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. You've got to let them go so they can worship. The children of God are the family of Abraham. And bread seems to be this promise of blessing that was given to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you can be a blessing. Bread is the blessing promise. And then who are the dogs? The dogs are the Gentiles. Now, understanding the parable is one thing, but sitting with this parable is a totally different thing. He's just called an ethnic minority and a woman, a dog. And in 21st century United States, there's almost nothing worse that anyone could do. So I'm aware of this. And at the risk of sounding like I'm defending something, I think there's more going on here than is simply on the surface. For one, the word dog isn't as it seems. It it is literally the word for little dog. It's like a household pet. It's the dog that's around the table. And so she understands. She says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The NIV says, yes, it is, which means she disagrees. But actually, she says, yes, Lord. So she says, yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So now she's taking on the title of a little puppy or a little dog. And she says, but they should get the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, on the surface, this makes a lot of sense. If you have a limited amount of food, don't give it to the dogs before you give it to their kids. But what if you have an unlimited amount of food? She says, look, there's plenty of food here. All I need is some of the spillover blessing. I just need some of the crumbs from the table to help me with what I'm facing right here. This word master's table is once again the word Lord. This is the fourth time that she has called Jesus her Lord. I, I, this says something remarkable about her, even if it gives us pause about him. So I want to dive into kind of what that means. Jesus said to her, woman, you have, we're going to come back to this phrase and kind of explore the full significance of this. You have great faith, great trust. Then he says, your request is granted. He's not a genie. This is the word, your will. Your will be done, he says to her. Have you ever heard anybody say, your will be done? This, this is Jesus' very own prayer language. Whenever he teaches how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he says, we pray for the kingdom and for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the will of God done. And here this woman says, he says to this woman, your will be done. Somehow there's alignment between her will and the will of heaven. But it's also the language of Jesus in the garden, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, where Jesus is crying. And he's saying, let this cup pass from me if there be any other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He tells this woman, your request, your will be done. And her daughter was healed at that moment. There's a neat kind of parallel here to Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus also healed another Gentile person. He healed 
their, their person who's far away, and he does it right at that moment. So it's like, this isn't even the first time Jesus has done this. What is going on with these two? But this is actually going to set the stage for something really significant in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. And then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they laid them at his feet and he healed them. So who are these great crowds? We've seen great crowds all around Jesus as he's wandering around Galilee. But remember, he's not in Galilee anymore. Where did he go? He went to Gentile territory. He went to Tyre and Sidon. These are non-Jewish people. Mark is explicit whenever he tells the same story. He says that these are Gentile crowds, and they're bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. What does Jesus do with these people? He healed them. And then the people, the Gentile people, were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they praised the God of Israel. Do you see how it says the God of Israel? You're only clarifying that this is the God of Israel if you're not in Israel anymore. And we're not in Kansas anymore here. Everything is upside down. We have the Gentiles worshiping the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish Messiah healing the Gentile people just like the prophet Isaiah said. He says, one day, the blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk. All these people who are broken and sick are going to get healed when the Messiah comes, except we're not seeing it in Galilee. We're seeing it in Gentile territory. So Jesus called his disciples and said to him, and his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for these people. Remember where he's moved in his his gut, he's moved to action. They have already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry. Do you remember that word, send them away? You just send her away. And he says, I'm here for the people of Israel who've been sent away. But now he's saying, I'm actually here for them too, who have been, I can't send them away without giving them what they need. They may collapse on the way. And his disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Were you guys here last week? Do you remember the story that we talked about? It's, it, it's literally one chapter before this, where they're in the wilderness and they're like, where are we going to get enough bread? They're asking the same question. And so it's easy to think, disciples, how dense are you guys? Don't you see, you just did this. He gave you the bread to go hand to them. You all gathered back 12 basketfuls of of extra bread. You should know this by now. So maybe, maybe they're just as dense as they sound, or maybe they're thinking something a little different. Maybe they know that the story of Israel has to be fulfilled before the gospel goes to the nations. Maybe they know that a feeding in the wilderness is what God does for his people, not for the Gentiles back in Egypt. So maybe they're thinking, yes, of course Jesus is the new Moses who can feed the people in the wilderness, God's people. But these aren't God's people. And yet, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowds to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they, in turn, to the people. Do you remember these verbs? These verbs are Last Supper verbs. When Jesus is trying to share the meaning of his death and resurrection, he takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it to them. 
this is all acute, that you should be thinking of death and resurrection right here. You should be thinking of who are God's true people, the ones who belong at the table. He says, these people belong at the table. It's a question really not of if, but when. When? Is it going to be now? And here we have crumbs from the table that are inviting people in who the disciples didn't think belonged. It says they all ate and they were satisfied, just like the story before. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. And after Jesus had sent the crowds away, finally, he does send them away, he got into the boat and went into the vicinity of Magadan. All right, I'm going to just try to make some sense of what's happening here. And I'm going to do it in some ancient context, some context in Matthew, and then by really just looking at this woman and trying to hear her story. Um, Matthew 13, 14, 15, and 16, this, this section. This section has so many stories of bread. Have you ever like picked up a, a piece of bread and you bit into it and you're like, whoa, there's a lot happening right there. What is in this bread? The, the baker over here smiling, yeah. It's like, there's a lot. Ha- is that nutmeg? Is that a pecan? Is that chocolate? It's just like, there's a story in Matthew 13 where he tells parables of wheat and, and bread. In Matthew 14, he gives bread to the 5,000 In Matthew 15, he gives bread. In Matthew 16, he's like, don't you understand about the bread? There's something in the bread here that we need to figure out what's going on. And I think that something in the bread has to do with contending with Christ. I'm going to use this phrase a lot, contending with Christ. You know what I mean by contending? It's kind of like a little skirmish, a little battle. Somebody bows up to him. Somebody stands up. And they contend with Christ. This happens in a lot of ways. The the primary way this happens is by people trying to correct Jesus. There's going to be several groups of people here who are trying to correct Jesus. They're contending with him as if he's in the wrong. Okay, so there's the people in Nazareth. He's just fed people. There's something in the bread here in Nazareth. And they say, it says, Matthew 13, that the people of Nazareth took offense at him. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Who does this guy think he is? You see, they're correcting him. Come on, Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, they do the same thing. Remember the hand-washing debate that kind of set up the scene at the beginning of 15? And it says these people act out of what the NIV calls a lack of faith. ESV calls it unbelief. There's no faith here. And when there's no faith, people are offended by Jesus. When there's no faith or a lack of faith, they try to correct Jesus. They're offended by him and they say, you are wrong here. There's another group of people here, though, who have what he calls little faith. There's a lack of faith on the way. And then there's a group that have little faith. And this group is always the disciples. <laughs> Peter is, he's actually walking on water, which is pretty noteworthy. And, and Jesus calls, <laughs> he starts singing. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. In chapter 16, they don't fully understand about the leaven and the bread. And he says, oh, you of little faith. There's people who are around Jesus but don't fully get what he's doing. They're around him, but they don't don't trust him. They don't have faith. But then, 
it's not just lack of faith and little faith. There is a woman of great faith. There's a, a posture where most people seem to be correcting Jesus. The disciples are like, you have to send these people away. They're telling Jesus what to do. These people are going to get hungry. Send them home. They need to go to the villages to buy stuff on their own. They're correcting Jesus. And let me just offer that I don't think correcting Jesus is the best posture for us. <laughs> One, in the narrative itself, it's not the best posture. Because who are the people who correct Jesus? It's his hometown people, the people of Nazareth. It's the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders who should know better. But do you know that this lady, <laughs> this woman, she contends with him in a way that isn't a correcting of Jesus, is not offended by Jesus. So I want us to be a little cautious before we feel too offended by, by Jesus here. Um, but I understand at the same time why we are offended. It's pretty obvious, right? I was reading an article in Christianity Today, and it's, it's entitled this, Why Some People Think Jesus Was a Racist. I was like, okay, that'll get your attention. <laughs> I was like, okay. He talks to a, a woman in an ethnic minority, minority like this? Why are we offended? Be because he calls her a dog. Because he's silent before her. Because he, he seems to ignore her. He seems to give mercy out indiscriminately to everyone else who asks. But for her... He makes it slow down. And so some people say, well, this is actually a sinful Jesus. There are many readings and commentaries who will say that basically Jesus needs to be corrected by this woman. And Jesus is kind of put in his place. He's bested in debate. He is the worst of the chauvinists, one commentator says. So there's a, a posture of Jesus where it says we need to correct Jesus and thank God this woman showed up to do it. But I think there's more going on here. And I think if we just asked this woman, we would get a very different story. No doubt this woman understands what it feels like to be kind of put in your place and made to feel like you don't belong, like you're an outsider. The disciples do it. It's probably not the first time in her life. But that is not how she experiences Jesus. So I, I really want to offer this. Um, there's a a correcting Jesus posture that the people of little faith and no faith take. But then there's this great faith posture that this, this woman takes. I want to just gently share the story of a, a woman who worshiped Jesus. She wasn't offended. Now, the Nazareth crowd who knew him best, they were offended. And the religious leaders who should have known him best, they were offended. But this woman was not offended by Jesus. She trusts Jesus. Let me say it like this. A sinful Jesus who is sexist and racist fundamentally isn't the Jesus that she bowed down and worshipped. She worships her Lord and King because she knows that he is all she needs. She knows that this man is compassionate to the hurting. She knows because she has heard that he is the man who says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. This woman cannot go and make a sacrifice at the temple, but she knows she can come here and find mercy. She knows he's healed Gentiles. He's done it to a centurion. He's done it to demon-possessed men who had the pigs. These Gentile people, she knows he's healed Gentiles, and she knows he's healed women. He's even healed women's children. 
so maybe he will heal my child too. She knows he can heal from a distance. He's done that before. She knows this man better than anyone else in the story. And so I think we should trust her. And she trusts him. She gets it. She gets him in ways that all the other people who should don't. And that's the point. Is that the people of Nazareth and the Pharisees and even the disciples don't have great faith. But she does. She has great trust and faith. It reminds me of Rahab. Remember the Canaanite woman. The people of Israel, they come out of Egypt and then they go into the land. One of the first places they go is the city of Jericho. And there's a woman that the spies are received into her home. And it says that her heart had been melted by God. And she knew this God. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And here we see another Canaanite woman come to Jesus and bows down as the God of heaven above and the earth below. She knows better than, better than she should, yeah, and better than everybody else too. And she knows that Jesus is, is worth trusting. But the characteristics of her faith aren't just trust. Do you see her humility? Now Jesus, he often does the raise the stakes before he, he heals. He, he raises the tensions. This is actually a really common teaching technique in ancient Judaism. Ancient Judaism is not lecture. It's not what I'm doing now. It's, it's challenge. It's provoking. It's presence. It's listening. It's, we might call it Socratic. Socratic from, from Socrates a few hundred years before Jesus. This, his teaching style is where he tries to raise the tension and then resolve it through presence. That's what he's doing here. He's, he's known for asking the question before he does the thing. What do you really want? How, do, you have, do you believe that I can do this? If you just go and look at the, the healing stories of Jesus, where that actually tells the story, almost every time he pauses. He asks them to lean in. And then when they're a little closer, almost close enough to touch, he leans in back. That's what we see here. We don't see him pulling away. We see him, yes, testing, but in order to draw into the relationship. We see humility, but we also see persistence. He's silent. What does she do? She just comes back. She gets a little closer. She bows down. She says, Lord, help me. She starts quoting the Psalms to him. Rebecca, I don't know how you were so spot on with a welcome this morning, but she was finding language in Israel's Psalms to go to God and say, I'm here, I'm a little closer, will you come to me? And what does he do? Scripture says that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. That's what Jesus does here. He says, not now, I've, I've come for Israel. She says, but I don't even need the thing we're waiting on. I don't need the full feast. I just need the crumbs. He says, you're absolutely right. Great is your faith. Your will be done. She's persistent. This is great faith. It's persistence and perseverance. It's humility and worship. And it's trust in his goodness. She becomes the example of this phrase. Mega faith. Great faith. And she's joined by one other. Another Gentile, the Roman centurion, Matthew chapter 
8, where he says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And one day, people from the east and the west, the Gentiles, they're going to come and they're going to join Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's table. And we're going to eat together. The last piece of contending with Christ is the practice. It's contending prayer. Have you ever heard this phrase, contending prayer? Contending prayer is all over Scripture. It's from the, really the first prayers to the last prayers. They really look like contending prayer. The Canaanite woman here, I think, is a model of contending prayer. Contending is where you keep going back to it. Her persistence, her, her dogged pursuit, as one commentator calls it. Contending prayer is intense prayers for something specific. It's, it's Jacob. You remember whenever he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32? And he's just wrestling. He won't let go until he gets the blessing. And he does. It's, it's wrestling with God. It's contending with God. It's Daniel fasting for 21 days while he's waiting on the conflicts in the heavenly realm to resolve. He's contending and fasting in prayer, waiting, begging God for an answer. It's the persistent widow in Luke 18 where he says, I'm going to tell you this story so that you always pray and don't lose heart. She just kept going back and said, give me justice, give me justice. And Jesus says that God wants to give her justice, but he not only wants to give justice, but he wants to find faith on the earth whenever he comes. He wants to find people who will pursue justice in their prayers. Contending in prayer is what Moses does in Exodus 32. God says, I'm going to restart. I'm going to reset. I'm going to do it with your family, not Abraham's family. They are so sinful and broken. And Moses says this. He says, why should the Egyptians say, has God brought them out here just to kill them? He says, remember your servants whom you swore by your own self. He says, remember your character. Remember your, your reputation. Remember what you said and who you are. He's contending with God. God wants him to lean in a little closer. He wants him to, rem to remember who God actually is and what God's promises actually say. And he wants him to hold on to those promises no matter what else is happening. That's contending prayer. Now, contending prayer can look really small. Um, one time I was uh, deer hunting in a field, and I know hunting illustrations turn some people off, so just turn it down for 30 seconds. I was, I was deer hunting, and I, I, don't, I don't know. This is one of the small ones. I asked God to send a buck into the field, and I said, Lord, I know you don't have to do this, but if you do this, I'll be able to tell the story of how, how awesome you are. Think of your reputation, Lord. And about two minutes later, there was a deer in the field, and it was a doe. And I thought, well, close enough. And I shot, shot that. I walked, again, turn it down if this is all, I don't know. So I walked out, and, and you know what? It was not a doe. It had one tiny little horn. And I was like, Lord, you did it. You sent me a buck. A unicorn, no less. <laughs> and I killed that unicorn. Uh, Lord, forgive me. Another time I was at Petty Jean State Park in Arkansas. And I had Evie on my backpack, like a little hiking backpack. And it, it's like a thousand feet down and a mile over. And we kind of got to the waterfall at the base. And it hadn't rained for months. And it was just a trickle. <laughs> I was like, Evie, like it, it's normally way cooler than this. And I said, but, 
but Lord, would you show Evie a glimpse of your power and just give her a little sign of your beauty? And about two minutes later, uh, as our families are sitting under this waterfall, it starts raining. It rains for, I don't know, three minutes, and then it stops. And we just praise God there as a family. It, it's remembering that God is good, and he wants good things for you. It's remembering that God's reputation matters to him, and his word matters. These are small things. Uh, back in November, I came back from a retreat. And I shared the story of our friend Allison. And Allison was expecting a child. Do you remember the story? And we were worshiping, and she was just dancing before the Lord and worshiping. She was just full surrender to him. And then after kind of that time of worship, we went to a time of just silence and prayer and reflection. And we heard her just intense groans and moaning and screaming and wailing. And they came back and they shared that she had just lost the baby. And she was internalizing, it's because you were dancing. This is your fault. And something happened there in that room that I've never been a part of in the church spaces I'm accustomed to. And I think partly because there were brothers and sisters from Africa and from Asia. And so everybody circled up and everybody started contending. Now, some of us were contending for like peace and compassion and a presence of God. But my brothers and sisters from Africa and India and Asia, they were contending for a miracle. And they said, God, we know you can give life. And they poured out their hearts and they held on to promises. And they trusted that God was good. And they didn't know if God would answer that prayer in the ways that they were asking. How far along is she, Kels? She's now 32 weeks pregnant. She did not lose that baby. The Lord sustained that child. And I know this raises questions of unanswered prayer. That's all here in this story too. For all the people who couldn't get to Jesus and they couldn't say, Lord, help me. But don't lose sight of what we hold on to. That what he's saying isn't no, it's, it's not now. And she's saying, well, why not now? All I need is a few crumbs. And he says, that's exactly right. And he gives it to her. Contending prayer is where you trust in the goodness of God and you trust in his promises and in his character. And you say, God, remember. And you may be thinking, what about your will be done? That's exactly what contending prayer is. It is where your will and God's will become aligned. And you say, God, I know this is your will. It may not be your will right now today, but I know this is your will, so will you give me a taste of heaven on earth? You see, it's, it's not the opposite of your will be done. It is the expression of your will be done. It's being so in tune with the heart of God where you say, God, I know you want to give justice. So give justice. I know you're a God of life. So give life. God, you have promised, and I know you won't, you don't have to do it now. You don't have to do it on my account, but I know you will one day. And Jesus is in the garden, and he prays, let this cup pass, because he knows it is not God's will that he remain in the grave. And he trusts him. 
He trusted him so much so. He so knew that what he was longing for is exactly what God would give. And he didn't find the full expression of it until the other side of the grave. But, but the contending prayer isn't just prayer. Remember, it's all set in this tension between sometimes we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, will you do something about this? Sometimes he does. And then sometimes he says, you give them something to eat. You see, she becomes what one scholar calls the hinge. She becomes the moment where this window to the Gentiles opens. She says, all we need is a crumb from the table. And so the next scene is more than a few crumbs of seven loaves that feed 4,000 plus women and children. There's, there's crumbs left over from the overflow of the blessing. He's healing them. He's feeding them. It's this glimpse of what God wants to do for all nations. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, it starts out with a genealogy. And the genealogy includes a Canaanite woman named Rahab. And then in chapter 2, it includes these, uh, they're the Magi. They're from the East. They're Gentiles. And then in Matthew 8, there's this Roman centurion. In Matthew 9, there's these demon-possessed men who are Gentiles. In Matthew 10, it says, one day I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And here, this woman says, we just need the crumbs now. But there's coming a day, Matthew 28, at the end of this gospel, he says, but now I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And we now live in the area, in the era of no more crumbs for the nations. I'm not an ethnic Jew, but as a white reader of this text, I feel that for my black brothers and sisters and people of color, where you may feel like you're on the outside, and there are no more crumbs at this table. <laughs> you, you are, you're not just waiting on, on the day when there'll be full invitation to his table. We're in that day right now. And those verbs where he says that he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it back. The death and resurrection verbs, they show that when we come together as a church, we, there are no second-class people in the family of God. The, so there's this multi-ethnic family piece that's happening in these stories, and he says, we are no longer in the era. To the Jew first and now to the Gentiles, we are Gentiles here at the table, holding on to the promises of God. Multi-ethnic is only part of this, right? There's also these calls for justice, the longing in our heart, the thing in your life that you shared at the table where you need God's intercession. He is interceding for you now. We may be asking for a preview of heaven on earth, but he says, your will be done. May they be in alignment. So let's close. Uh, with, this, with this burden and a prayer. Would you stand and draw to mind the thing that you shared at the table, the thing where you're needing intercession? And maybe the Lord has put something else on your mind. Maybe there's a thing that you keep praying for this year because you just want, you, you want it to happen now. Would you just hold that up to the Lord? Lord, we hold up to you the burdens in our hearts and the broken things in the world and Lord, our own hearts, which are, which are sinful. And I am, as I have said this week, 
I am so ready for you to purify my heart. I'm ready for you to move in my family in the ways that, that we keep coming to you and asking for help. Lord, I'm ready for you to move in the people who are in grief and in pain for my sister Alechi. Would you contend with God in your, in, your, in your heart right now for those things and hold on to a, a good thing from God? Lord, we come to you knowing who you are, that you are good, and we trust you. And we come to you knowing that you will give life, and it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we pray for a crumb from heaven to fall in these things that are on our hearts right now. We cry for justice. O Lord, bring justice. We cry for mercy. O Lord, pour out mercy. Lord, Son of David, our Lord, our King, there is no one else that we can get these things from other than you. We come to you. We bow before you. You are the God in heaven above and on earth below. Our hearts have melted before you. And we trust you, Lord. Would you grow our faith? Lord, move us as you hand the bread back to us and say, you give them something to eat. Would you burden us not only with these problems, but would you mobilize us as solutions so that we may become people in your name, bearing your kingdom in this way? Oh, Lord, Christ, thank you for interceding for us. Thank you for saving to the uttermost. Thank you for our advocacy and your mercy. Amen.